0: Celebrity, let your weary mind be free, and someone kind of famous who you can't see. It's time for Sleeping with celebrity. Hello, sleepy heads. Welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, we invite guests to step out of the limelight and into the nightlight. On this show, for one bedtime, we ask our friends to not bring their A-game, but rather their Z-game. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can relax. I'm told it's enjoyable to do dishes to this podcast you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with James Urbaniak. James is going to talk with me about a certain window of time in New Jersey. A strong memory is the barrels of pickles
1: in the local stores. We're talking the big, crunchy pickles, John.
0: Before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Sleepyheads, it is time once again for me to tell you about another podcast here on the Maximum Fun Network, where we have the maximum amount of fun. This one is called Feeling Seen. It's hosted by Jordan Cruciola, a writer and producer whose work has been in New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, and Wired, feeling seen as a movie podcast about the moments when we recognize ourselves on screen and the ways we might find that representation lacking. Every Thursday, each episode features a guest guest talking about the character who made them feel seen on screen. That's feeling seen on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, to introduce my guest. You have seen and heard James Urbaniak on screens big and small. If you haven't, it means you are probably some sort of wilderness person. If filmmaking were like survival, your two most important tools would be the camera and the actor. And if you could only choose one actor to help you survive, you'd want to have James Urbaniak. Because he can do anything. Voice acting, comedy, drama, dramedy, and those are all the things. He plays Dr. Thaddeus Rusty Venture in the Venture Brothers animated series, as well as Dr. Venture's twin, JJ. He is the high school principal in the movie The Fablemans, a Roman soldier in History of the World Part II, and has had parts in roughly 65% of TV series that have aired over the past decade. That is a precise figure arrived at through science. And now he will play himself on this podcast. James Urbaniak, thank you for sleeping with us this evening. Thank you for
1: inviting me, John. It's a privilege to be here. It's a wonderful show. Thank
0: Thank you for what you're doing for the public. Thank you for saying so. I like to start bedtime conversations with a question or two about sleep itself. Yes. What is the best night of sleep you have ever had, James? Well, John, I
1: thought about this because I know you ask your guests this question. And I had a couple of thoughts, but the one I'm going to tell you about occurred last summer. Uh, To make a long story short, and by the way, the story had a happy ending, so I know this is a somewhat stress-free environment. Yes. So I don't want anyone to get concerned. It all Uh, turns out okay. (laughs) It all turns out okay. But my wife and my very indoor cat got out and was lost for a few days, and we did get her back, so the story has a happy ending. All right. I won't get into the details, but as you can imagine, uh, this was a very stressful uh, short period of time, mm. and our beloved cat, Layla, sleeps with us every night. That's uh, Like many cats, she's a creature of habit. She likes... Uh, she likes uh, Routine. Routine. She likes convention. Mm. And the routine is that my wife tends to go to bed before me. I go to bed a little bit later. Layla will be with me in the living room, and I will carry her into the bedroom, and the three of us will then sleep together till the morning. Nice. So she was missing. It turned out (coughs) she had wandered into the crawl space of the house next door, and we had alerted our neighbors because her understanding was that Cats don't actually go that far once they get out of their indoor cats. Mm. So we got her back, and she was actually quite fine. She was not particularly dirty, and she didn't look like she'd lost weight. She's been an indoor cat her whole life. We don't know if she ate some bugs. But, you know, they're hardwired. They, they are wild animals. They're hardwired. You can see sure. it when they play their games. Sure. So as you can imagine, the uh, that night... When she was back, was a particularly restful sleep, because of the great sense of relief uh, that we were all back in bed together. So
0: how long had she been gone? That.
1: About five days. Oh, yes. But uh, that was a very relaxing night,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then we all woke up together. Uh, we understand how she got out. We made sure that would that eventuality would not happen again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nice. And uh, always well. Nice. Do you always sleep in the same position every night? Far from it. Mm-hmm. I, I rotate
1: between left side, right side, and stomach. Oh, now, stomach. John, I do not sleep on my back in bed. However, I am an actor. And as you know, when actors are uh, on... Uh, locations, we have trailers to yes. uh, to wait in. There's a lot of yes. waiting. And these trailers tend to have a very narrow sort of a couch, which doubles as a cot if you need to take a nap. Mm. And often, uh, there's not much room to move on these things. Uh, and also, on these shows and films, they tend to Give you a little bit of hairspray that you kind of don't want to move around too much to mess up your makeup or you know trade secrets. You know, sure. there's an element yeah, the of current. glamour to all this. Yes. So I have adapted to back napping in a trailer,
0: mm.
1: and uh, I'm pretty good at that. I can I can get a few winks off in a trailer on my back, but that is not a uh, a regular position in the bed. What position does your
0: cat sleep in? <laughs>
1: The cat uh, the cat uh, does the, sort of the classic loaf position. Mm, curled. Uh, somewhat curled paws uh, under, underneath yes. the body. Uh, mm. Yes. And she's actually a very good sleeper. It's very rare that she'll get up and wake us up in the middle of the night. Occasionally, she'll use her litter box. She has uh, one of these litter boxes with a lid and a little door that she goes through. And she, after doing her business, she will then sort of scratch the sides of the litter box. It's just one of her routines. It's one of those things she does. It's related to the making biscuits thing that that cats do. Mm. So she'll make a bit of noise in there. And in fact, she visited the litter box uh, about 20 minutes before we started this recording and made her noise, paws against the wall, and... uh, 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 Pause against the side of the litter box. So I think we'll be good uh, for the rest of the recording.
0: Good girl, Layla.
1: Yes, Layla. So named because my wife and I were watching Goodfellas uh, the week before we got her. And as you know, the bridge to Eric Clapton's Layla is yes. used to great effect uh, in that film as it all starts to fall apart for for the gangsters. Mm. And uh, that name just sort of popped out. There it is, it's Layla. <laughs> You had. She had you on your knees. later. She had us on our knees, indeed. Coin a phrase.
0: James Urbaniak, please tell us the topic you have chosen for today, and, and why you have chosen it. Well, my topic is.
1: Uh, my topic is the uh, the seven years I spent as a little boy in Bayonne, New Jersey, mm. which is uh, a small city in Hudson County, New Jersey. I lived there uh, until, I was, until the summer before I turned eight. My birthday's in September. And the summer before my eighth birthday, uh, we moved to central Jersey, to uh, Monmouth County, mm. to the suburbs. <clears throat> uh, Bayonne is more of a small city, uh, somewhat working class. Uh, I haven't been there in probably a couple decades. I did have a lot of family there. But recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was back east and I visited my dad. Uh, again, not in Bayonne. Uh, he's moved. He's moved. To the same house that we moved to in the early 70s. And my sister was there. And we just started sort of reminiscing about uh, when we were very young. And I started thinking about Bayonne. And John, part of what I was thinking about was memory. And how interesting memory is that my memories of being a boy in Bayonne are very simple memories, and they're all basically Mm. non-events. One memory I have is my mother sending me a couple blocks away to go to a nearby deli to buy some bologna uh, by myself. She gave me some cash. That's the, mem- that's the story. A boy walked a couple blocks to a deli, bought some bologna, and came home. Now, and I remember this one particular time that I did that. And so the memories are all sort of like that. They're non-events. But for some reason, these non-event memories get lodged in our brains. And we always go back to them. And I think it might be, if other people have noted this, that there's some sort of emotional kick to the memory. So, in that case, perhaps, uh, it was me as a five-year-old acting somewhat independent. This is also very much a document of its time, the late 60s. There was less uh, what you call helicopter parenting. Right. Uh, I think it's less common these days for five-year-olds <laughs> to, <laughs> to fetch be sent on errands to fetch bologna independently. And yet, this was just the way it was, uh, And so there was probably a sense of pride in me accomplishing this, and that's why I continue to flash on on that memory.
0: Do you Uh, remember what the deli was called?
1: Yes, it was called Betty's, which also feels like a very post-war name. uh, Betty Draper, Uh, and it had big. It had a indeed. It had a. (laughs) It had a. uh, The letters. Big capital letters outside, which in my memory—and John, as we know, memory can be unreliable sometimes. Sure. But my memory is they were bright colors, either orange or yellow. It said Betty's with an apostrophe S, and there was a woman who worked there. I don't know if it was the eponymous Betty, but uh, I remember that very well. Betty's Deli. Hmm. This would have been in the late '60s. I, I was born in 1963. So I lived in Bayonne from 63 to, uh, I guess, around 1970. was probably the summer of 71 when we moved uh, downstate to the suburbs. Uh, my father was a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother tended to be a, a housewife, occasionally would do uh, work, occasionally worked as a teacher's aide. When I was very young, she worked as a secretary for a while. But that's sort of the topic, uh, Bayonne slash memory. Hmm. Uh, I thought of a title, which you don't have to use. I would like to use it. The title it? would be Bayonne, colon, Gateway to the Past. And because we're talking about memory and my past life, also Bayonne is sort of... And again, caveat, I haven't been there in probably 20 years... But I did look up our old address on Google Maps and the house and the neighborhood looked exactly the same as I remember them. There's a lot of alum- aluminum siding in Bayonne uh, which I think of as a very sort of post-war 1950s uh, thing. As you know, Barry Levinson in the 80s made a movie called Tin Men. Yes. which is about aluminum siding salesmen, and it's set in the early 60s, which is essentially the 50s, as we know. Right. And uh, there are still houses with aluminum siding in that neighborhood. It looked exactly the same. I don't know when these Google photos were taken, but obviously recently, relatively recently. And it was a real blast from the past, I must say.
0: Uh, that was a uh, Richard Dreyfuss film, as I recall.
1: Richard Dreyfuss and Danny DeVito played rival aluminum <laughs> siding salesmen uh, in the early '60s. Yes, I saw it when it came out. I haven't seen it since, but there's something about the memory of these houses with aluminum siding, and I don't really know the history of aluminum siding. But I, again, I associate it with a kind of post-war aesthetic/practicality? slash Mhm. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: so I so for me Bayonne and this is purely subjective obviously but Bayonne is very frozen in time for me. Uh, this is the Bayonne of my childhood the 1960s uh, and these little non-events uh, of little Jimmy Urbaniak.
0: George R R Martin, the author of the Game of Thrones books. He is indeed He was born in Bayonne, New Jersey.
1: He is indeed, uh, as is the eminent actor Frank Langella. I'm not the only actor from Bayonne.
0: Frank Langella.
1: The great Frank Langella. Clem Burke, the drummer for Blondie. Good Lord, are you looking at the notables on Wikipedia? No, I just know these. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's, there you go. Yeah. What is it about... Shaquille O'Neal. Now... I looked at the Wikipedia for Bayonne in preparation for this interview, and I did see that there is a notable people from Bayonne, some of whom, it says, have an association with Bayonne. But then if you were born there, you get a capital bold-faced B. And I am proud to say that me, uh, Mr. Martin, Mm-hmm. Uh Mr. Langella, we all have boldface bees, but Mr. O'Neill does not. So I don't know what his association was. Perhaps he moved there as a child. I don't know, but uh, yes, it's it's near New York.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's it's near New York, but it's very much
0: a, a regional, you know city in the tri-state area. Why do you think it was that the trip to Betty's to fetch baloney was one of the first? memories that you had that that you thought to bring up when you thought back to Bayonne. What was iconic about the bologna errand? Well, first of all, I love bologna, or I loved bologna. I honestly haven't eaten
1: bologna in many years. But uh, that just feels... It feels very, very uh, redolent of a certain place and time. Uh, the name Betty, which, again, just for me, has a certain... World War II slash post-war ring to it. Yes. Uh, uh, Baloney as a sort of affordable luncheon meet. Um, uh, The Me as a little boy probably around five again as I said walking by myself to run this errand it just feels it all just sort of resonates for me uh, as a, a certain time. Now uh But I must say, my earliest memory, and this may sound crazy, John, but I swear to uh, God that I have a memory of crawling towards my parents. And here's the memory, John. Hmm. So this would be actually in, when my parents got married in, I think, 61. I was born in 63. The first a couple of years of their marriage, including my first year, they lived in a house in Bayonne. Then after I turned one, they moved back to the two-story apartment, apartment sort of a row house apartment, where my father grew up. Oh. And my father's parents lived on the bottom floor, and we lived on the top floor. So that's where I lived from age one to almost eight. Hmm. Um,
0: so... Now, where was I with this before that? uh, Well, I'm hoping that it doesn't involve you crawling to Betty's for baloney. Yes. No, no,
1: I didn't. But yes. So in that house, uh, now, obviously, a house I lived in until I was one year old, I have no memory of. Sure. But I have an image in my head that I've always remembered, and it's like a film. The POV is the cameras on the floor looking up at... The young, madman-era version of my parents, 1963. John F. Kennedy is still in the White House. <laughs> well, no, actually, he's probably just been assassinated. Okay. Sorry to bring it down again. Because I was two months old when he was assassinated. But Lyndon Johnson is, is, is in the White House. And in the memory, it's I am moving ground-level towards my smiling parents who are smiling and nodding and encouraging me to crawl towards them. Now, is this a dream or is this an actual memory? I believe it's a memory because, again, like the Betty's thing, there's an emotional kick to it. Mm -hmm. I'm receiving positive reinforcement from my parents. Uh, Is there something about my future as a performer? tied to this I'm executing an action (laughs) (laughs) the way an actor does and I'm getting essentially applause uh, for it Uh, so if yeah so uh, that's an image I have and then the earliest memories I have after that are probably around four years old I remember in the old I do have one memory of the old house no no uh, tell a lie. This was after we moved to the the apartment above my grandparents. Mm. And here's a funny thing. I don't remember a lot about the inside of that apartment. But when you, you walked up some steps to get there, on the side of the house, in the back, there was a back entrance uh, where we entered. And there was a little alcove, a little hallway, leading into the main apartment. And as a child, I spent a fair amount of time in that little hallway because I sort of liked how separate it was. And there was a window. You could look out the window, and there was a clothesline that was attached to a pole on the other side of the driveway next to the house, which is also very, feels very vintage to me, my mother hand-drying laundry on a clothesline. And uh, I remember once I caught a praying mantis outside, and I put it in a jar with... uh, I nailed holes in the top of the jar, and I kept it in that little alcove. There was a little white shelf uh, in that little hallway. And that is my most vivid memory of that house. And for some reason, I don't really remember the interior of that apartment. I don't remember my room. Uh, I vaguely remember that I had a plastic... A uh, rocking horse that I think my parents had gotten me for Christmas once. Mm. I remember sitting on that rocking horse in the living room watching TV. And in my memory, I'm watching The Honeymooners. Mm. Uh, and I thought Ed Norton was funny. Sure. Uh, the character Ed Norton, obviously, not the, not the eminent actor of later years. Uh, so I, I, have, I have very, very patchy memories of the inside of that of that home now can i ask you yes. where were you living at this age as as a as a little boy
0: my first memory that i i believe to be accurate was driving up to the house that we were to move into when i was 3 almost 4 years old yes and the people who were living there at the time Waving to us from the deck of the house. Yes. I wondered at the time whether they were trying to keep us out of their house and that we were charging in anyway. But I I soon understood that they were just being nice. Waving, not shooing. Not shooing. Not shooing. Yes. But I remember the orange headscarf that the woman had who was living there.
1: Very good. And I remember the orange color of the Betty's sign. These bright colors mm. somehow lodge themselves into our our brains.
0: I wonder if there's a fondness for safety and comfort that becomes imprinted when we're at an early age where we think, I'm arriving somewhere where I'm welcome, I am loved, I am safe, warm, and secure. And that's mm-hmm. what burrows deep into our consciousness.
1: Because when we come out of the womb, we are experiencing the opposite of what you've just described. Yes. So it's a continual yearning for safety and comfort, as opposed to harsh light, strange noises, uh, hands on our body.
0: Yes. 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 Clotheslines outside.
1: Clotheslines outside.
0: Do you find that more of your memories of early childhood in Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, resonate with this idea of, of, well, of, of there, there's the idea of comfort and security, but there's also this idea of adventure in some of your memories of, of crawling for the first time of going to Betty's for baloney. Indeed, um, Do you Indeed. find that these themes uh, resonate in other memories? Sleepyheads, I wish to tell you about another podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. This one is entitled Just the Zoo of Us, and it's an animal review podcast from Ellen and Christian Weatherford. In each episode, the hosts evaluate how an animal excels and how it doesn't, rating the animal out of a score of 1 to 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give their takes informed by real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals. If you or your children have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slowly, or how a spider sees the world, you can find out Every Wednesday on just the Zoo of Us. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. Available at Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find that these themes uh, resonate in other memories? Yes, I remember there, was a, uh, there were a lot of trees in Bayonne.
1: It's a, it's a little city, but it was, it's a leafy little city or it was then anyway. And there was one uh, house across the street that had a, a backyard that was almost like a little woods. And I have a distinct memory of, again, being a very little boy, seven or under, uh, walking in there, finding a stick, very little boy action, and just holding a stick for some reason that was important to me, mm. and walking in the woods with my stick because you need a tool or something when you go into a wooded area, right? But that does feel like a low-level adventure. Let's explore. And also, this is like someone's backyard. I don't know what I was doing, wandering in there, but mm. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yes, the sense of adventure. Now, down the street, uh, here's another very strong memory I have. There was a, a, a like a two-story factory, not a large building, but a wide, a wide building, and it was a pickle works. That's how we all referred to it. A pickle works. A, a pickle works. It was a factory where they produced pickles. And one memory I have of this era is going to the supermarket or even the deli with my mother, and pickles would be in big barrels. I feel like I'm talking about the 19th century or something, but this was a thing. Would you, would you bat your
0: hoop down the road with, a, <laughs> with the stick that you had <laughs> fetched?
1: No. And I okay. never played stickball, and to this day, I don't really understand what stickball is.
0: Mm,
1: yeah. Uh, but there were... That's a strong memory, is the barrels of pickles in the local stores. We're talking the big, crunchy pickles, John. You know, that Bill you pickles. then... Yes, that would be wrapped in wax paper. And to this day, the pickle is one of my favorite foods. If... Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm in, this doesn't happen so much in L.A., but if I'm in New York and go to a deli, I will order a BLT, perhaps for breakfast, and there's got to be a slice of pickle with it. It's unthinkable that I would have it without. And I wonder if this sort of romantic memory of the pickle factory down the street, and you could sort of smell the, uh, the pickle smell in the air, which is a pleasant smell, in my opinion, mm. and then the big Uh, pickles in the barrel in the store. That's such an evocative memory for me. And in fact, uh, a couple years ago, I was flashing on this memory. Maybe it has to do with getting older. As I get more and more distant from that time, I sort of fall into these little reveries thinking about my youth and Bayonne in particular. And I thought, the pickle works in Bayonne, does that still exist? What was the deal with that? So, yeah. I googled it, and it doesn't appear to exist anymore, but I found a, uh, because the internet has stuff like this, I found an archive of a newspaper uh, from the time, possibly the Jersey Journal or a, a newspaper from that area, mm. and I found a classified ad, you know, these are scans of, of, of newspapers. Sure. Sure. And Google led me to a classified ad uh, from 1970. And I want to I have a copy of the ad in front of me. I'm going to read it to you. Thank you. It begins with all caps. Salesman, comma. Now we now we go to lowercase. Salesman, comma. Mature, comma. Wanted to call on old established accounts. Waxburg Pickleworks. 282 Broadway, Bayonne, New Jersey. Now, John, the dramatic possibilities of a mature 1970 pickle salesman in Bayonne, New Jersey seem limitless to me. I I assume you're familiar with Ben Catcher's uh, comic strip, Julius Knipple, real estate photographer. Real estate photographer, Yes, yes where he, uh, he has a sort of Willy Loman-esque figure, a sort of shabby middle-aged man in what seems to be a, a sort of old-timey New York going from business to business. Uh, and I, that's what I imagined. Uh, I, I was so taken by this classified ad, and, and I started imagining the life of the Bayonne pickle salesman. Got to fill those barrels. You know, yeah. pushing pushing the merchandise, which doesn't strike me as that hard to move, uh, pickles. But yes, the other thing about this ad that's fascinating to me is they ask. It says, "Salesman, comma mature." Mature. Comma. Now, we this don't is want 1970. A rookie salesperson selling our pickles. No, and we want to go to old established accounts. So they they it there may be this is remember this is sort of the height of the generation gap. Yeah, they might not want a long-haired salesman, right? Some kid with a mustache and sideburns wearing bell bottoms, yes, and a, a pais a, a paisley tie. You want a conservative-looking fellow who uh, feels like a, a part of the neighborhood. We don't want Paul McCartney. Trying to we don't that. want Paul McCartney. No, 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 no. We want uh, Vincent Gardenia to yes. pull a character actor out of the. who who might be appropriate casting for The Pickle Salesman at that time. Those of you who don't know can look him up. Tony Franciosa, perhaps. Tony Franciosa. Uh, Today, perhaps, Frank Langella, though not the Frank Langella of 1970, who was a
0: a very uh, longish-haired, youthful uh, type. If I may, James, I would like to read to you from a poem called Conjugating by Judith Valente. I discovered this poem last night when I was Googling the Waksburg Pickle Works. Okay. Well, would you, you like main... to read it
1: yourself? Oh, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, so please do,
0: do read the, the excerpt. It's just a selection from it. Yes. I knew my mother at that moment stood ankle deep in red rubber boots in a pool of gray water hosing down cucumbers at Waksburg's pickle Pickleworks so she could earn... $1.05 an hour, squirrel away a few dollars each week to pay my $600 tuition, and at 3 o'clock when Sam Waxburg blew his plastic whistle, removed the boots, pack up her lunch sack, take home the Broadway bus smelling of sweet relish, pickled onions, while the school kids sniffed her clothes, laughed behind her back.
1: Now, the poet doesn't mention Bayonne, New Jersey, but that's clearly where that
0: is. It couldn't uh, be anywhere else. She does mention uh, houses on Bentley and Fairmont Avenues. I don't recall Bentley and Fairmont, but
1: I would say that's very likely that those are streets bet. in Bayonne. And that pickle works was indeed just like a block away from my house. Mm. And that's very evocative of Bayonne in that period. I, I said it had a kind of working-class... Uh, Feel. Uh, I was looking at the Wikipedia for Bayonne, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and it notes that, if I may quote Bayonne became one of the largest centers in the nation for refining crude oil and Standard Oil of New Jersey's facility, which had grown from its original establishment in 1877, and its 6,000 employees made it the city's largest place of employment. Uh, significant civil unrest arose during the Bayonne refinery strikes in 1915 to 1916, in which mostly, mostly Polish-American workers staged labor actions against Standard Oil. And my father's father worked for that company for many Standard years. Oil. He was part of the aforementioned Polish uh, immigrants mm-hmm. who came. And it's fascinating to me that... What did you have? You had letters, basically. Uh, you didn't have the internet. You... Didn't have people calling Poland from New Jersey, but word got out uh, that there's opportunities, not only in New Jersey, but in this one town where there is a heavy Polish American, uh, Polish immigrant uh, population.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also it was very there were like two Catholic churches in town, and my grandfather was a very Catholic man. And there's opportunities to work for this company. Uh, standard Oil. You can work at the, you know, at the, at the refining plant in Bayonne, or you can work at the pickle works. Mm. And after World War One, my grandfather came over. He had actually come over before World War One. Then he he went back, fought in the war uh, as a Polish soldier. Uh, famous story in my family where he played dead on a battlefield, and then ran away
0: <laughs> I always wonder why more soldiers on battlefields don't do that it's a great idea and indeed so my grandfather
1: did a little acting in uh, 1917 uh, came over didn't speak English uh, word got out to Poland there's this town called Bayonne you can get a job yeah. with Standard Oil uh, being a laborer uh, and uh, you can get yourself a little, a little home there and that's indeed what happened. And then his son became a public school teacher, and his son became a, uh, a fancy
0: actor laddie. An actor. such it's The American a, dream. Such a, a quick journey from generation to generation. I it really is. oil worker to, to, indeed. Uh, uh, to, one of the, to being in a, a Steven Spielberg film. And a man who
1: is now t- sitting in a closet talking into a
0: microphone.
1: Uh, discussing his his work on a TV cartoon. It's a
0: remarkable journey. Having worked with Steven Spielberg, do you think he's a pickle man? Oh, I would think so. I would hope so. He's a
1: famously nice man. I've heard that he's very nice. He was a complete mensch to me on the set. Very, very pleasant. And uh, he seems like he'd enjoy a good pickle. And indeed, that film is a a wonderful reverie about his past and his youth. Uh, Very, very evocative, I thought. I was very happy to be a part of that. It's funny, when I I auditioned for that, uh, these days, as you probably know, you you tend not to, because of COVID, they sort of eliminated going to casting offices. So now everyone's got a camera on their computer or phone, so you just tape your auditions at home. Mm. I like it. I'm also in the privileged position of being married to someone who is a very good reader, reads mm. the other lines, but we auditioned for that. I auditioned for that, and it wasn't quite clicking. And uh, my wife said, "It's just not specific enough. You haven't quite found the character of this high school principal." And suddenly it occurred to me that my father was a schoolteacher. He's still alive, but he's retired. And during the summers, he would run the local recreation program in. Marlboro, the town that we moved to after Bayonne. And he would stand on the auditorium stage and welcome the campers and that sort of thing. And uh, he had a certain energy. And so I started doing my dad, basically. And I'm kind of doing my dad in the movie. So there you
0: go. That's, that's inspired. Do Are your memories of Marlborough as vivid and wistful and poetic as your Bayonne memories? That's interesting. Uh, I certainly
1: have much more, many more memories because that's where I grew up. Sure. And I remember, I mean, I was just in that house uh, the other week, so I I know it really well. Mm. Uh, But I think there may be something a little extra vivid because the Bayonne memories are more limited Mm. And because precious. I'm so young at that time, they were a little more precious. And so, pr- and perhaps indeed, there's a, a romanticized uh, uh, um, aspect to them, you know? I had made some notes about other Bayonne things. Um, oh, I had cousins who, uh, a big family my mother's sister's family mm-hmm. i'll give them their privacy so i'm not going to say their name but they uh they all kind of had a vocal quality that was like this and i've met other people from bayonne i think there's a certain dialect where i call it the bayonne bubble because it kind of sounds like you have a bubble in your throat you, you get what i'm saying it's
0: uh, it, sure. it sounds a little I, kermit the froggy right now it's a little kermit up there
1: yeah, it's, hey, Jimmy, and they all kind of, this family, all kind of talk like this, and there's a certain dialect, I think, in Bayonne, where that's where the voice is placed. So the Bayonne bubble mm-hmm. is a memory I have. Uh, oh, I vividly remember my first day of kindergarten. Um, I also vividly remember the day I got my first communion, when you're like seven years old in the Catholic Church,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that was sort of the biggest event before we moved. But I remember being in kindergarten, and again, there's a sense of pride. There's, a, there's an emotional kick to the memory because I was pleased as punch to be there. It was called Public, public School Number 12, and I gotcha. was sitting there, and a, a boy who lived down the street from me was screaming, hysterical, screaming, crying, banging on the door for his mommy, did not want to be there. And I have to admit, John... I sat there with a little bit of pride, thinking, "Well, I'm fine. I don't know what his problem is." Mm. So there was a little, a little, a little touch of ego, perhaps, a little pride yeah. in being well-behaved. Maturity. Yes, my maturity. Yes, yes. At age five, so that's a very distinct memory I have of that first day.
0: Were you? Um, you you have a birthday in September. So did you yes. start early? with kindergarten or were you almost Yeah, later I later? I came
1: I, I probably started in September, so I may well have been 4 for like mm. the first week, but that was it. Yeah, then I turned 5 and uh and started. And my kindergarten teacher's name was Mrs. Coffee. Oh. Mrs. Coffee or or no, actually, I think she was the aide. There was another a teacher whose name I think was Miss uh Mrs. Zelinsky. And then Mrs. Coffee was the aide. And then in first grade I had a teacher named Mrs. Sarentino. Mrs. Sarentino, And my father used to make a quasi joke where he would say, Mrs. Coffee, sorry, tea no, which has the logic of a joke, but isn't really a joke. He's
0: It's a joke and... that goes on a little too long, <laughs> even though it's only made of a couple of words.
1: Yeah. A coffee, sorry, tea, no, and and yeah, <laughs> it falls and apart he, on no. It it, it loses. falls apart <laughs> on no, but he would, uh, in a very dad-like way, he would he would whip that one out regularly at that time. Mm. He Wait, he just found it, was it very a... funny that I'm, there was a Mrs. Coffee, and then the next year there was a woman who had the word tea in her name. This is, <laughs> and, and he
0: would go back to this joke
1: time after time. I imagine. Now and then, if 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 one of these teachers came up, perhaps my mother would say, "Oh, I saw Mrs. Coffee at the store." Then my mm. father would remember and go, A oh, Coffee, sorry, Tea." Now my father has a bit of a Jersey accent. That's uh, an imitation of him. So that's. Uh, I'm glad it, it's it's. I'm glad it's working.
0: It's it still works well. <laughs> my thoughts on it are that uh, Mrs. Coffee implies the existence of a Mr. Coffee. Is there a Mister Coffee? <laughs> in, in my kitchen, there is. Of course. <laughs> Indeed, there is. Yes. And um, and and that also the the it's the dad joke model of yes. I like this joke. I'm going to keep going back to this joke. Oh and yes. People around me are going to wonder why I keep telling this joke when it's already been told and it isn't going over big, and. The truth is that the dad is doing it not for anyone else, but for himself. Yes.
1: And I I don't remember him ever telling this joke outside of the house,
0: outside Mm. of the family. Did your dad have the Bayonne bubble dialect?
1: You know, he... he, Not
0: really. He... uh, Maybe a little bit. A little
1: bit. My dad... He kind of... He has a mild Jersey accent. He kind of sounds like this. Uh, Hey, Jimmy. That's kind of how he talks. Okay. Okay. And then uh, I discussed this recently, uh, um, but uh, my mother is from Jersey City, which is next to Bayonne. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had two uh, uh, sisters who were very lovely women, and they had a kind of classic Jersey, which kind of sounds like New York, uh, East Coast accent. And my mother told me that as a young woman, she worked to lose her Jersey dialect. And so my mother spoke in a somewhat over-articulated voice. I told this actually story on another podcast recently. I'm sorry. But my voice, I believe, is a combination of my dad's kind of Jersey attack, Mm -hmm. a certain loudness, and my mother's rather precise way of speaking, which she trained herself to do. Mm. Uh, So I believe that's why I have this
0: particular voice, which has served me well.
1: Uh, it's in show it's mutable. It
0: can, it can apply to a number of things. <laughs> Thank you. When somebody asks you, Bayonne, New Jersey, what's that like? What's your elevator explanation for what Bayonne is or was in your, in your memory?
1: Mm. I got to say, I, I, whenever I think about it, I picture sunny days, which again may be me romanticizing my youth. Uh, I remember the things that we've talked about. Uh, uh, Sort of houses with aluminum siding, uh, factories, uh, uh, children having a certain freedom. Uh, I remember playing with local kids outside. It was a classic thing where we would go outside and play. And then uh, the parents would literally call us in for dinner. We'd, We'd all play on the street. There was a man next door, uh, named Mr Ball his name was Charlie Ball and Charlie Ball had a a very a very a steep slanted driveway and Charlie Ball was a nice man and he let the kids play in his driveway uh, which was a great place to play you were off the street Charlie Ball was also an amateur painter and my father owned a couple of Charlie Ball paintings one of the sunset which I believe is still hanging in his my father's current home uh, so it's sort of just the way I, I've described it to you, this sort of, this very sort of post-war, it's not a suburb, but a small city, uh, and, and, and again, the, the memory I have is, is a kind of, a kind of timelessness that it, it, it just feels very 1950s and, and, uh, sort of of that post-war era it just feels sort of quintessentially that to me that community and again this is my subjective uh, opinion which is affected by memory
0: and you're based in los angeles now yes
1: yeah i live in la now after i yeah we moved to central jersey and then i moved to new york Mm -hmm. where i started my acting career and i lived in new york city in manhattan for 20 years and then i moved to la in 2007
0: Okay, okay. And when you go to delicatessens in Los Angeles, (laughs) I can't imagine that there's a lot of uh, ordering bologna by the pound, but do they not serve pickles with sandwiches there? The thing is, I don't really buy
1: sandwiches and delis in L.A. that much. It's just sort of not a thing. Uh, We have a couple of supermarkets near where we live. There's a Gelson's and a Trader Joe's. Mm. Uh, but it's not the same. I associate sort of deli sandwiches with New York.
0: Yeah.
1: And when I go back to New York, uh, I was just back there a couple weeks ago. I, if I wake up in the morning, I have to make my way to the nearest deli and buy an egg sandwich on a roll Mm. with bacon and sometimes cheese, which comes wrapped in tin foil and, uh, That, for me, is quintessential New York deli food, also the aforementioned BLT. Uh, There just aren't delis like that near where I live. Mm. So that's a very East Coast thing for me. And I guess I do think of uh, pickles as more of an East Coast thing, even though there are some fine diners in L.A., uh, like Cantor's, that will have big dishes of Pickles straight from Wachsburg Pickle Works, that kind of classic pickle.
0: When I was in Los Angeles and went to Cantor's Deli, I was talking to my wife about how everybody thinks that you'll see famous people in Los Angeles just by being in Los Angeles. And how that's not the case in my experiences with Los Angeles. To which she said, Seth Rogen is walking in front of our car right now. Incredible. And it was true. When I first
1: moved to L.A., within my first month, a friend who I'd met in New York but uh, had moved to L.A. was sort of showing me around. And we went to get coffee. I forget what neighborhood this was, but we just went to a typical L.A. strip mall to get a cup of coffee. And um, my friends, a man walked by, and my friend said, that's John Voight. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, well, well. And then, a different man, she pointed to another man who was sitting at an outdoor table in this strip mall with uh, coffee or something in front of him. He was an older man with white hair and he was staring into space with what I can only describe as a haunted expression. And my friend said, that's Robert Blake. He's here all the time. And indeed it was Robert Blake, TV's Beretta, and this was after the the whole uh, Robert Blake murder trial that we know. Uh, and he really looked like he was staring into space going, wow, I, I can't believe I got through that. Um, and, and I thought, good Lord, this is life in L.A. It's my, I've been here for three weeks, and I, I, I've seen John Voigt and Robert Blake at the strip mall. And then I don't know how much time had gone by before I saw another, another celebrity. Hmm. I think I saw the actress who played Dr. Weaver on uh, ER in, uh, okay. in a Whole Foods uh, maybe a year later, <laughs> which was a big one for me. I love Dr. Weaver, yeah, the sort of ornery uh, uh, doctor with the cane.
0: Oh, right. It. Sure. <laughs> well,
1: now, has my voice maintained a soothing quality throughout this? I'd, that's important to me. I that's, think it has.
0: I think it has. I think you've... Um, You've you've found the pocket. You've found the bead. Good.
1: And and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to, I felt like these sort of uh, uh, offhand, disparate, non-event memories of my youth would work for this show is because they are such non-events, and that I don't want to say that they're necessarily boring, but perhaps there's a soporific quality.
0: Yeah, I think there's almost a a sense of a a randomized camera with <laughs> early events. There, there's, for some yes. reason, certain moments just get saved on the hard drive and there yes. isn't always a clear reason why. It's not always high drama or, or trauma. Yeah. It just, uh, the, the shutter goes off and you don't know when that's going to happen.
1: There was a, uh, when I started going to public school, uh, we would walk there, and there was an older girl on the block who would walk with me when I was little. So in kindergarten, she, uh, she was maybe 10 and I was 5, so she would walk me to school. That was sort of a little arrangement we had. And one day she was walking me to school, uh, and she started to laugh, and she pointed to a car, and the car had a flat tire, which just looked funny. There, again, that's the story. Uh, the girl pointed to a flat tire, and we I both laughed. laughed. And I still remember that. Why that is wedged in there, I don't know. There was another day. This is a little more easy to explain. I was walking with a boy, a friend, and like you do when you're a little child, and maybe when you're an adult, we were listing bodies of water. Sure. So we were like, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean. And then one of us said the Red Sea. And in my memory, an old man barked at us in a kind of angry voice. And I won't do the full voice now because it's not appropriate to the, the lulling nature of this show. Yes. But he went, There is no Red Sea anymore. It's all dried up. There's no Red Sea. And I was not alarmed by this. I was more bewildered. Like, that's odd. It's odd behavior. Well. Now, that, that's not so strange that i re- This event occurred in, like, 1968 or something when I was, like, five. In Bayonne, New Jersey. In Bayonne, New Jersey. Who this man was who wanted to argue is kind of... He was kind of a future tweeter when you think about it. He was actually... He was a reply us. guy. Yeah. <laughs> he was a re- He was... Back then, reply guys were on the street, you see.
0: Right. Just yelling at children. <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> he had a quibble. Yeah. With uh, He believed the Red Sea uh, no longer existed, which was incorrect, by the way. Classic reply guy. It takes a village to Indeed. mislead a child. <laughs> <laughs> so these, these are things I remember.
0: Yes. <laughs> James Urbaniak, thank you so much for sleeping with us. Oh, it's been a, a, a pleasure. I really, really enjoyed the show. And, uh,
1: and I hope uh, people might have some vague dreams about crawling or buying
0: baloney after all this. I hope so. James, good night. Good night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about Bayonne, New Jersey and pickles as much as I did. Something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned. So if you don't mind... I'm just going to make a list of takeaways from my conversation with James Urbaniak, just right now, while it's fresh in my mind. One, working actors need to learn how to backnap in trailers whilst on location. Two, in the late 60s, it was not unusual to see a five-year-old boy purchase bologna independently from Betty's Deli. Three, Bayonne, New Jersey, lots of aluminum siding. Four, Bayonne, New Jersey, Gateway to the Past would also be a good title for a biopic about James Urbaniak. And finally, if you were looking for work in Bayonne, New Jersey, there were two great places to consider Standard Oil and Waxburg Pickle Works. Okay, I'm gonna turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, James Urbaniak. You can follow Sleeping with Celebrities on both Twitter and TikTok at Sleep with Celebs. On Instagram, the handle is at sleep W celebs our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org music provided by the Winter Bowers social media assistance by Charlie Moe. this program was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher Swish Sleeping with Celebrities is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick I'm John Moe. Night night.
1: MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.